Play. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. WHCR 90.3 FM New York. It's too late to say Yo, sorry. Yo, that's the only song I like. Was upset that I didn't hear last. Because I drank way too much Hennessy. Guys, is it too late to say sorry for going to Brooklyn at eleven o'clock at night last yeah, night? What was up with that? And before that, you gave me some whiskey. Oh, you were like oh here, my. try this McAllen. But wasn't it great though? It was, except for I don't really like. Th- whiskey. There's some guy calling here, and he doesn't speak English. And I don't want to put him on the line because it's, I know it's the wrong number, but I don't think Are he wants to accept sure? that. Yes, he's called before and cursed at me afterwards. <laughs> oh, so, boy. yeah, this is one of the struggles of being an engineer, guys. But we are not here to talk about the guy who's on the phone calling right now because he probably wants to call me some word that starts with a B and ends with a A or I. I don't speak Spanish well. We are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM. WHCR, the voice of Harlem. I am here with Selena Hill and Alyssa Fuchs. We are going to be talking about veteran neglect. We'll also be talking about the terror attack in Paris. If you want to call in with questions or concerns or to speak Spanish to me, then curse me because I won't put you on air because I don't know what you're saying. You can give us a call at 212-650-6903. If you have the internet and your AOL 2.0 has not expired like us, then you can tweet us at beheard underscore Radio. If you like Facebook, you can also leave a comment on the Politically Preposterous, which is Alyssa's fan page, and it has lots of people because they care about things and they want to say things. So, I want to kick this off with some actually very somber news. As many of you may know, there was a there was a terror attack in Paris this past Friday, mm. and you know mm. I, I don't want to get into too much details because I'm sure like you guys have like seen it all over the news for the last. Two or three days, but they at least 120 people have died. Something probably closer to 200 people have 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 died, with over 40 people who have been injured. ISIS has put out a statement claiming to have like taken credit for it, but like it's very clear what's happening now. Now Paris and France has closed their borders. We have the pundits over here saying we should close our borders. You had some people who are running for office on the Republican side saying that this is President Obama's fault because we have not shown strength and. Um, in the Middle East against Iraq and ISIS, and all of a sudden the drumbeats of war are beginning again. And this is not something that's just very new to us because if you watch the Republican debate earlier this week, we had um, we had Donald Trump and we also had Marco Rubio saying that they wanted to make the Syrian air a restricted airspace. And then Marco Rubio and then Brand Paul made a very interesting comment that I'll play for you guys a little bit later today, where he said, "Listen, we can make that a restricted airspace, but that means if they go there, we have to shoot their planes down." And if that happens, you are saying you are willing to let your sons and daughters go to war. When they come back, what do we have for them? Mm. In the last couple of years, now, and I guess we'll start from since the Iraq war, which started in 2003, we haven't had much to offer them. And that war lasted for over 10 years and it cost more than a trillion dollars. And we lost more lives if we can count over 2,000 American lives, over 100,000 Iraqi lives. If you want to count those, some people don't. And we're still there fighting that war. And our veterans are in America, and they are suffering more than ever. And if you don't believe me, just to give you some stats, black veterans, they make up about 11% of the military. They make up about 39% of the homelessness up there. 
Iraqi veterans, people who went to Iraq and did their first, who did the first tours in 2003, 11 to 20% of them suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. 30% of soldiers develop some kind of mental issues three, three to four months with, with them coming home. 55% of women and 38% of men have reported being victims of sexual harassment or assault while they were in the military. And in 2010, an average of 22 veterans committed suicide every single day with the average age being 50 to 59. We have a serious problem with our veterans. So as we are all worried about our friends and family in Paris, and as we are all frustrated about what's going on in the Middle East with Iraq and with ISIS, and as some people start to beat the drumbeats of war... They want to send your son, your daughter, your sister, your brother, your friend, your neighbor to war. And if they somehow survive a war against people they've never seen with language they've never heard and problems they don't understand or probably don't even care about because it doesn't affect them, then they get to come back to an America which has a VA hospital that's falling apart and has a waiting list longer than the corner store on a Friday night when you're trying to get some Hennessy. Then they have veterans who cannot find jobs. Yes, one out of five veterans in the U.S. cannot find employment. And you have veterans who are very close to homelessness and don't have the treatment they need to make sure that they're okay. So today on this show, we're going to be talking about that veteran neglect. And I know Selena had her hand up and so did Alyssa. So, um, Selena, you want to go first? Well, yeah. You know what? I probably should have just interjected because you were giving um, a a lot of news and a lot of that ba- a lot of feedback about what's been happening in Paris and I just wanted to add in something that's really important one of one group of people that is receiving um, a lot of backlash are refugees so and it's so ironic because they're fleeing war-torn countries to come to France and you know all of a sudden they're you know they're experiencing what they experienced back home and now they're becoming a target and I remember even a congressperson a US congressman tweeted like this is why we should to be letting in refugees over in um in Europe or here. Like so Stanley was absolutely right about shutting down our borders because I always wanted to add to the ridiculous comments and statements that we're hearing. Yeah, I mean, well, shutting down borders involves what even in France a logistical crisis. I mean, borders are not just you know, like land borders. I and mean, you yeah. have planes flying in that are coming into Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, you know, so there's different types of borders and it's much harder to just say like let's shut down the borders but on the issue of refugees um before i transition back into the veterans um yeah you know these are refugees that are fleeing war-torn countries they're fleeing the very people uh, who are doing these attacks and yes there is a possibility that in all of those migrants and all of those i don't want to call them migrants actually because they're refugees they're not migrants um in those refugees sure could one or two people that are terrorists slip in as a way to get into one of these countries absolutely but i think it's also important to acknowledge that the majority of the refugees that are moving from these places are moving oh try and get away from these terrorists and that you know the few it's not like they're all coming in and they're all terrorists because that's that's definitely untrue but to get back to the veterans issue the comment i was actually going to make in what really appalls me is that we have all these veterans coming home from wars they need jobs they need health care they need access to education etc um we have very little money for that or at least the government says we do but yet apparently the department of defense has money to pay sports teams to put on patriotic displays and if that doesn't appall you um you know i don't know what your sense of morality is because I think that, one, sports teams, if they want to have patriotic displays, and they should, they should just do it because it's the right thing to do. They shouldn't charge the DOD money, and the DOD shouldn't offer to pay the money. And two, 
that money really should be going towards actual helping vets who have PTSD, who have other issues. It should not be going to just flying flags and saying, oh, we support you at a football game. That's ridiculous. Alyssa, thank you so much for bringing that up. I was actually going to make that like my next point of reference. So the military is spending millions of dollars to let to like so, so that these sports stadiums and these teams can, quote unquote, honor these veterans. And now this is one of those things that's coming out at the moment because the military spends so much money on things that doesn't seem to make much sense. Like the gas station that cost them $40 billion where they were spending there, like... There's no gas to run from. Yes, and that they had like $500 per hammer. And guys, if you do want to call in and jump into this conversation, the number is 212-650-6903. But I want to use the frame of this conversation to ask the question of like, is it a case of us not having enough money in the military defense budget to take care of our veterans? Or are we just spending the money the wrong way? Well, it's interesting because the money that that's a budgetary issue right so the money that goes to the military active military DOD is separate from the money that gets funded for veterans affairs and stuff like that and so the military has a ton of money I mean two-thirds of the federal budget is made up of three things military Medicaid and Medicare so put Medicare and Medicaid aside for a second because we're not really talking about that issue today we're talking you know and military is making up a large portion of the federal budget however from what I understand the VA or veterans issues they come out of a separate discretionary budget that goes to the VA so that question is you know, it's hard to answer because the military has a ton of money, but that doesn't mean it's trickling down to the veterans. Right. That's what I was going to say. I think that a lot of it is mismanagement and just not putting enough emphasis on the importance of taking care of our veterans once they come back over. Because the thing is, we do have money in the budget and we do or we are always collecting our tax dollars and that goes to the government. But what are they spending it on and why does it take a big scandal? I mean, it wasn't too long ago we had that big scandal in the Veteran Affairs um, Department and it was fine. And that is what it took for veterans to finally get some health care. No, you're absolutely right, Selena. If you guys are wondering what big scandal you're talking about, so what happens is that there are hospitals that veterans can go to. We call them the VA clinics. And um, the waiting list to get treatment for these hospitals was so long that people were literally dying. Mm -hmm. Now, if you can make it to the hospital, the treatment is good, but there was not enough hospitals, they don't have enough resources, and they had an antiquated way of keeping track of all the names on there. So it was it was like as if they had a system. So Selena, Alyssa, and I had a debate party on Friday night, and we had people register for the debate party through this program online called Eventbrite. So we could just take their names automatically, and they were listed. We had over 200 people sign up for that debate party. Between the three of us, we cannot manage 200 people, the radio show, our personal lives, and work. So Eventbrite does that. But imagine if we were trying to get these people signed up by writing it on paper, and we were all super unorganized. That's what the VA is doing with this waiting list, and people are dying because of it. So someone who needed a lung in two weeks has been waiting 15 years for it, and then the VA will call them like, hey, ready for that lung? But they've been dead for 12 years. Mm. But I don't want to take all the air out of the room, guys. We do have a caller on the line, one of our favorite people, Brother Omar. Please let your voice be heard. Yes, thank you, and thank you to your lovely uh, panel that you have every uh, Sunday, Brother Stanley. And uh, this is Omar calling from the Big Mango here in Harlem. You know, first of all, I'm totally against the war. 
anything dealing with war is totally out of the question. And, you know, the sad part about this whole scenario in uh, uh, France, Viva la France, c'est très joli, c'est si bon, to all of our friends and relatives that we may have there, and we're all connected in the eyes of the Most High. Uh, the sad part about it is I was looking uh, at my Facebook you just had over 150 men, women, and children slaughtered in Kenya uh, at the same time that this pillage was going over in France, and no one has even mentioned that. I repeat, no one, unless you're on the Facebook and you've seen it. So if we're going to go to war uh, over what's going over in France, then we have to go to war in Kenya and all these other places. And I said no. And the people who are crying out for war, not one congressman or, or senator has a son or a daughter that's serving in the armed, uh, armed, armed services. And, and if I, I, might, I might be mistaken. Maybe there's one. Yeah, there, so there always, actually are a few now. It's always the people that are screaming and hollering for us to send our children and grandchildren uh, over to war and fight and die. And, and, you know, masters of war, as Bob Dylan said back in the 60s. And I, I'm, a, I'm a credit of the Vietnam War. I decided not to go to the war, but to serve my country in the peace. Core, so we need more peace. We we don't need war. These these fanatics. These people are going to do this. This this is unstoppable. Bush has opened up a Pandora's box, and they use that nine eleven uh, thing to 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 disrupt that whole system over there uh, in the in the uh, in the the Asian in the in the Asian minor countries. And now the chickens are coming home to roost. So um, Brother Omar, thank you so much for calling in with that comment. He just dropped a load of knowledge, and I wanted to take, um, I wanted to mention something in particular that he mentioned about an attack that was going on in Kenya almost simultaneously with, in Paris or a little bit before Paris, but no one's bringing it up. And it just reminds me of, you know, what happens with Boko Haram and, and a lot of different things that happen in different countries in Africa. And it's like they just they don't get that same type of that attention. That attack actually happened six months ago. Yeah, it was old. It was old, but th there was a point why it was brought up. The yeah. point was to just show the difference in media coverage when something happens when sure. 147. I mean, so yes, that is over six months old. However, I think the more salient point is the attack that happened in Beirut, which is this is you know people are used to hearing about attacks happening in the Middle East, and so they there was a big attack in Beirut, which happened right. the same day as the Paris attacks, yes. and that kind of got overshadowed by the Paris attacks, yeah. um, but. Stanley? No, no, and you know, and we don't, we're not saying like. So I sometimes get a little bothered when we, we have these like kind of conversations because I feel like some people are just. It's like it's almost like a competition to see who has the crappiest day or who has the most trouble. That's right. not what we're trying to do. Obviously, we're trying to show that like even within this, we still have problems within the media where we are not highlighting the issues of everyone. We are only spotlighting a few. Um, and a perfect example of that is of how the media's treatment of veterans. So there was a veteran who just received a Purple Heart on Friday. Mm -hmm. And you know what? And like we're all very proud of him and we all feel so great for him. But then what he mentioned was that the reason he got the Purple Heart was because he helped to like get, like get a suicide bomber out of proximity to hurt a lot of soldiers. He lost his leg. Four of his fellow soldiers died. Those families now don't have their sons, their husbands, their brothers there. And they get a Purple Heart, they get an American flag, and they get left dry. Because at, from that, after that, like, you don't get much support 
once once their pension is over, sometimes they'll even try to cut your like to cut the pay to say, oh, this person didn't do these hours, so we're not going to pay them for these hours. You know what it reminds me of? It's a it's a crazy analogy, but you'll follow me. You ever see the movie Good Goodfellas? Yeah. And you know when he goes to jail and like she doesn't have any money. Goodfellas is actually based on a true story, by the way. But you know, there's a point in the movie where he goes to jail and she like doesn't have anything, and she basically talks about how once you you know, once you go away, like they cut off your whole family, right? And they don't help anybody out. And sort of that's similar to what Stanley is bringing up in that, you know, these soldiers die. And in some ways after that, like the families don't get the sort of support that they need. Sure, they're entitled to some support under the law in monetary, monetarily speaking, but that money like does not add up to the money that this person would have brought in potentially had they have lived and come back and had a job and right. been able to provide for their family. So it's pennies in comparison. It's not helping them. And then for those veterans that do survive, like the one that you just mentioned who got the Purple Heart and lost his leg, then they have to have access to health care, disability, educational benefits. And so a big thing that happened also this week in, with respect to veterans is that the White House and President Obama announced um, this new measure that is going to supposedly help military veterans gain easier access to these types of things. Um, and it's a way to push into the spotlights the administration's efforts to improve the way the government treats veterans after the scandal at the VA, which you already mentioned. Uh, so the president's actually going to urge Congress to improve a program that allows veterans to receive private medical care. Um, this will help them to speed up the appeals process for any disability claims. And the president is pushing Congress to pass legislation that is aimed at improving the quality of schools that serve veterans. Now, funny thing is, and this goes back to your beating the drumbeats of war and the thing that Brother Omar mentioned, which is Congress is very quick to beat the drumbeats of war and very quick to authorize the use of military force and send veterans into harm's way. But then when we need Congress to act to pass laws because, as you know, the president doesn't pass laws. President Obama can go down to Congress and say all he wants and say, you should do this, you should do this, you should do this. And then, I hate to say it, it's mostly Republicans are like, oh, we don't got the money for that. So, right. you know, it's it goes back to that line. I've mentioned it before on the show, but it's a Tupac line. He says we have money for war, but we can't feed the poor, right? Mm -hmm. And we can't feed the poor and we can't feed the veterans and we can't provide them with health care because – Money, 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 money for war. But when people come home, Republicans are like, nope, can't spend any money on that. Sorry. No, you're absolutely right, Alyssa. And it shouldn't be like that. I know we're going to break. Yeah, so guys, we do have to go on break. When we come back, we'll be talking. We'll be switching gears a little bit more, talking about some of the extreme comments that have been being made since the Paris attacks and what this means for America's soldiers and their veterans. We'll be right back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM, WHCR, The Voice of Harlem. Something, something, something. We are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM. WHCR, the voice of Harlem. If you are just tuning in, this is Stanley Fritz. I'm here with Selena Hill and Alyssa Fuchs, and we are talking about the veteran neglect in America. And if you just are listening now, but you want to make a comment because you have heard nothing, but you have a lot to say, our number is 212-650-6903, or you can tweet us at BeHeard underscore radio. If you missed the first half of the show and you want to catch the rest of it later on, 
I'll catch the beginning later on. You can find it on Scatter Radio, or you can find us on iTunes, which is LYVBH Radio. You can listen to all of our pre-recorded shows on there. Guys, don't forget, we're on Twitter. Tweet us at BeHerd underscore radio. So, as we were leaving the segment, we were talking about, leaving, leaving for a break, we were talking about the new initiative that the White House is putting out there, and we talked about the president cannot write write and pass laws, Congress has to do that, but he can go there and say, hey, we should do this. Alyssa Alyssa was telling us what he had in mind, and she has a few more details about that. Go ahead, Alyssa. Right, so, and the other thing that he can do is they can set goals for states to try and comply with. So one of the things that this plan did when they started to lay it out in 2010 was to try and end chronic homelessness, because um, homelessness among vets is very, very high, and oftentimes what happens is when vets can't find housing, they end up in prison, which is something we're going to transition to talk about in just a few seconds, and I'm going to throw to Selena in a minute or two to discuss that issue. Um, But what these goals were was that we wanted to have no veterans sleeping on the streets and no more than 12,500 veterans in shelters or transitional housing. This past August, Connecticut became the first and the only state in the country that actually has achieved that milestone for veterans that are living in the confines of the borders. Uh, Another part of this plan has to do with college because a big way to get veterans off the street is um, to provide them with low-cost education so they can transition the skills that they learned when they were in the military into skills that they need for civilian jobs. Um, And so this will... To, what this will do is it will provide recently transitioning veterans and their dependents with in-state tuition at public colleges and universities, uh, and this is in line with a provision in the $16 billion overhaul of the Department of VA that was passed by Congress last year after the scandal. So um, this will give that a uh, lot more veterans the option to seek out low-cost education and one of the main ways in which we can keep veterans off the streets and out of jail is through attacking problems of homelessness, health care, and, of course, education. And if you're wondering why we even need something like this, it's because of things like this. 1.5 million veterans are at risk of being homeless due to poverty, lack of support, lack of qualifications for jobs. As of the moment, 30.2% of veterans aged between the ages of 18 to 24 are unemployed. Nearly 1 in 10 veterans with disabilities were unemployed as of this moment, and we already know that we have over 40,000 Homeless veterans right now making up more than 10%, making up more than, pardon me, 8% of the total homeless level in America. Many who are suffering to, from PTSD, which is a big reason why there's a disproportionate number of veterans that are currently on death row. And for that, I'm actually going to throw to Selena and she's going to give us some more details. Right. So the Death Penalty Information Center, they've released this report, I think a day before Veterans Day or right around Veterans Day, revealing that, as Alyssa said, there's a disproportionate amount of veterans on death row. Right now, there are 300. And according to this advocacy group, the reason why there's so many veterans on death row is simply because the justice system, meaning judges, prosecutors, and juries are failing to take into account that these veterans have are suffering from mental trauma, PTSD, as well as other mental conditions. And what's happening is we're, we're sentencing them to death for heinous crimes. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to deny that. But the thing is, we owe our veterans at least a thorough examination of the grievances that they experience before we sentence them to death. No, absolutely. You were going to say something? Yeah, no, I was going to say I agree with you 110%, Selena. And most of these veterans didn't have these issues before they went to war. That's true. That's, absolutely that's, that's something true. that we would re- to be very cognizant of. Most vet- most veterans start to develop these issues 
four to five months after they have returned home because of what they've seen while they've been on the ground, whether they were fighting or they were just somewhere where there was a high level of violence. Alyssa? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, this is also there's these things. I always say everything's connected to everything else because it's true. But this issue of one, yes, the criminal justice system um, is not taking into this mitigating factor into account, and it should. And as you point out, some of these crimes are actually heinous. But if you're proceeding from the proposition that some of these heinous crimes have been committed due to the fact that these veterans are suffering from PTSD, then you can say, had you have put money towards health care and provided proper health care from the beginning in order to deal with the PTSD and get these veterans the counseling that they need, then maybe they wouldn't have committed these horrible and heinous crimes to begin with because they would have had the proper treatment to deal with the PTSD. But it was never dealt with. And because it was never dealt with, they ended up going on to commit a heinous crime. Now, with the criminal justice system, we have to figure out whether we should, and I think we should, and I think a lot of people will agree, take this into account as a mitigating factor before we sentence a veteran to death and put them on death row. Well, guys, I, w- I actually want to take things in another direction, throw a bit of a curveball. Something says I throw curveballs. I like that. I like that phrase. Um, we all know what happened in Paris. We all know what's been going on with ISIS. Do you think, like with the information that we received on Friday, that we really need to, like, so what's the word I'm looking for? To muscle up and go back to the Middle East and really start supporting Paris. And if so, what can we do now to protect us from having so many people coming back and not having the support they need. Selena? Well, there's been a lot of calls for NATO to step up. There's also been a lot of calls for the U.S. to ally with our partners in Europe and across the um, across the world, and even in a lot of Arab nations who are fighting against ISIS. The thing is, something does need to be done when it comes to this terrorist group, because they are growing. They're growing in numbers, they're growing in power, and they're committing these acts of terror all over the world, especially on westernized, civil, um, westernized countries. So I think that while I'm the biggest person to say, no, let's not fight, let's not go to war, and let's always first see if we can find some diplomatic approaches to things, which we actually did with the Iran nuclear um, deal not too long ago. Um, We took a diplomatic approach to that. But the thing is, it's... Something does need to be done, and I don't, you know what, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of torn, because the thing is, I don't want our troops to go back over there, but the thing is, something does need to be done, and if NATO was calling on the U.S. to bring troops over there and to send some type of military support, whether that's financially or whether that's just troops on the ground, then, I mean, I think a lot of the country is going to back it because they see what's going on. But I want to push back just a little bit. So, I, I understand that point of view of it, but like, so what do we do to make sure that these future veterans don't come back with nothing? Mm. Well, I mean, that's the point. And that's the conversation that we're having today. The thing is, what needs to be done is we need to make sure our resources are actively being um, put in these places that will help them. Like Obama just um, came up with this proposal to help the the homeless veterans, to also help them get access to health care. I think that if we just spend some more time and emphasis and us as people made sure that our elected officials know that this is important to us and that we're advocating on their behalf, then... Basically, the situation and these issues will have more light and then we'll see more people acting on it. Well, you know, first, I think we have to start from the proposition that, you know, we had a hand in creating this situation to begin with. Yep. Now, we've already done a show on that. So if you want to check out that show, it was a great episode of Let Your Voice Be Heard <laughs> Radio. Was it was we asked the question whether or not George W. Bush created ISIS. It was a great show. It's in our archives. We're not going to rehash that right now. But first, we have to look at ourselves and say, do we take responsibility for potentially creating this problem to begin with? OK, yes. Once we get beyond that 
point. Then we have to proceed from the point that we're actually already in the Middle East. We don't have a large scale number of troops there like we did when we were in Iraq um, back in 2003. But we already do have troops there. There are boots on the ground, whether they're there in advisory roles or they're doing, you know, the SEALs or the Rangers doing covert operations. We already have military on the ground. So the question is not, do we want to send the military into the Middle East? The question is, how many more troops are we sending into the Middle East? Right. And then after we proceed past that point and say, okay, we're going to send this number of troops, if we are going to send any to support a NATO coalition or on our own, then we have to think to ourselves how well, you know, these people are going to come home as veterans. And then the question needs to become before we send any more troops. Are we able to support them when they come home? Are we willing to spend the money to make sure they have the health care, they have access to jobs, they have access to education? Because if we're not going to be willing to spend the money on the back end, then it, you know what? We can't sit here and we can say, yeah, the world's unsafe and yeah, we, we feel like there should be a military solution. But at the end of the day, the world is unsafe if we are not going to support our veterans when they come home because, you know, then we have people with PTSD running around the United States and potentially, you know, shooting places up. I mean, yep. uh, uh, you know, without getting into a debate about, you know, the the sniper, but right. he was killed. Chris Kyle was killed by another veteran with PTSD right here on home soil after he got home. So that's the thing is, yes, we need to look at the world. We need to look at the conflicts and decide whether or not we want to get involved in it another conflict to fix everything that we screwed up to begin with when George W. Bush was president. But at the same time, if we're not willing to commit the funds for when the troops come home, then we really have to have a serious look at ourselves and a conversation about whether or not that's something we should be doing. It's definitely twofold. And I just wanted to add in there, not to take away from your point, but most troops and most people that suffer from PTSD do not commit any type of criminal activity or any type of heinous crime. But again, there are the people that do, and that's the ones that need to be addressed. So I just wanted to add to that. But no, Alyssa, you're absolutely right, and I just want—I know we're going to talk about the Dem debate, the Dem debate a little later. But one of the main points that came up where Bernie Sanders pushed back on Hillary Clinton was her vote in Iraq and and her vote to go to war in Iraq. And what he did was he tied it all in, and he was talking about, well, if we never went into Iraq, then we wouldn't have gave ISIS this room and this vacuum to just fill in and to basically um, build up their power. So, like Alyssa said, it is rooted back into our actions and into the decisions that was made under the Bush administration. No, Selena, you are absolutely right. And I, I, I want to make sure I still play this comment that I was talking about that Rand Paul made at the debate, because as we are all very upset about what's happened, what's happened in Paris, what's happening in Africa, what's happening in the Middle East, and we're all getting ready to to say, let's go to war. We really need to be mindful of like what that actually means. And as we all know, I'm not the be- the biggest Rand Paul fan. But, but a, like a I, broken clock is still right twice a day. Yes, it is. So here we are with Rand Paul. said, sir, that that would be a mistake in not talking to Vladimir Putin or to rule it out. You've argued that, that, that it's never a good idea to close down communication. With that in mind, do you think the same applies to administration efforts right now to include the Iranians in talks on Syria? I'd like first to respond to the accusation. We should, I think it's particularly naive and particularly foolish to think that we're not going to talk to Russia. The idea of a no-fly zone, realize that this is also something Hillary Clinton agrees with several on our side with. You're asking for a no-fly zone in an area in which Russia already flies. Russia flies in that zone at the invitation of Iraq. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but you better know at least what we're getting into. 
So when you think it's going to be a good idea to have a no-fly zone of Iraq, realize that means you are saying we are going to shoot down Russian planes. If you're ready for that, be ready to send your sons and daughters to another war in Iraq. I don't want to see that happen. I think the first war in Iraq was a mistake. You can be strong. That was Rand Paul talking at the last Republican presidential debate that happened earlier this week. He was saying that he thought the war in Iraq was a mistake in the first place. He was saying he does not want a no-fly zone in Syria because you know what? Russia will go through that no-fly zone. We will have to shoot down their plane, and Russia will respond. And guess this, what? Russia has nukes. Yes, they do. And that is an entirely different like bag of mess that you absolutely do not want. It's like getting into a fist fight with a drunk homeless guy on a train at 2 in the morning. You are not going to win. But I digress, guys. We have to close out this segment. And I really just want to leave you with something to think about as you sit at home and you drink your coffee or you're getting ready to go to church. Or maybe you just got back from church and you're just tuning in. We lost 100 plus lives on Friday in Paris, France from a terrorist attack. We've lost since Iraq war over 4,000 lives, American lives, most of them active duty people. But then also, we've lost countless other lives of veterans, whether it was because of suicide, whether because they were arrested and put in prison, whether because they are homeless now, and they're that drunk guy that I was just talking about that you're ignoring on a train, whether it's because they just can't find work and they feel small and they have no other options. We have countless veterans who need our help, or maybe it's too late to get our help that we are ignoring. We have women veterans who were raped, who were maybe sexually assaulted or sexually harassed while they were out there protecting our country, and now they come back to, to American soil and they're having their reproductive rights attempted to be taken away from them. They cannot find work. They need health insurance. They need health care. They cannot get to a hospital. They cannot get the kind of medicine or the treatment that they need. Meanwhile, we are here on the show pontificating about politics. And a bunch of you are on Facebook right now pontificating about an attack that happened in Paris or trying to show people how woke and aware you are because you know what happened in Kenya and our veterans still need our help. If we are to be as great of a country as we claim to be, if we care about these things as much as we say we care, that's as, as much as we think or we say that we care, we have to make sure that we take care of the very people who put every single thing on a line for, them, for us. Because you know what? The only time you take care of a veteran that you're nice to a veteran shouldn't be on Veterans Day because you happen to have a day off and you're at brunch and you saw that one woman in the suit. It should be every single day. And we have to make sure our elected officials do the same. Because if they don't, then they need to be the ones that suffer the consequences. We'll be right back, guys. When we return, we'll be talking about the news roundup, the dumb debate, and all sorts of ratchetry. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. Nikki on the track. We are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. And we have just finished talking about the veterans and how we have been mistreating them and how they have so many issues. And we have just been ignoring them because Selena is a horrible person. Just no, kidding. It's, it's not, not my fault. It's not. It's Definitely not, Selena, not. It's not Selena's fault. But if you are wondering who Selena Hill is, she is the host of Let Your Voice Be Heard. I am the co-host and we all We're Stanley all Fritz. hosts, Stanley. Yes. Let's not this mix is up Destiny's those Child. titles. This is Destiny's Child. That's she. Stabbing. Selena, we're on live stream. <laughs> they can see you stabbing me. <laughs> That's the, for the first said. time I actually did. Because you always tell people that I'm doing something to you. Mm-hmm. That was the first time I actually did stab you with this All pencil. All right, Leonce. So I'm here, Stanley Fritz, with Selena Hill and Alyssa Fuchs. And we just finished up a great segment about the veterans. And now we are switching gears and going to the news roundup. But before we do, um, I would just like to say something. So a couple of days ago, um, I lost a very good friend of mine. So a lot of you guys may know I used to work at City College. Um, for um, a student action group. 
Can you um, name that group? Yeah, yeah, yeah. NYPIRC, the okay. New York Public Interest Research Group, which is a really great group. And through that group, um, I I met a lot of amazing students. And one of those students I met was Sean um, Luke Prince. And unfortunately, Sean passed away earlier this week. He was an amazing kid. He had so much potential. And a, a lot of people on campus are really sad and they heard about this. But I want you guys to know that Sh- Sean was like a bright light. And he was one of those people that could, you know, he 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 changed the room, he changed the atmosphere. And if you do nothing else today, please send your warmest, your warmest, your warmest thoughts or your prayers to his family because they need it right now. And to all those who knew and loved Sean, just know that it's our job to make sure we honor his memory and do right by him. So, Sean, please rest in peace. We love you. Definitely, definitely. I'll continue praying for that family as well as what's going on in Paris. Seems like so much, so many tragedies happened this week. Yeah, I definitely. mean, you know, I don't know. It's just a lot of things going on this week. And Stanley will definitely keep you up in our thoughts and our prayers because I know that's a hard thing to lose somebody, especially somebody so young. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, but um, like we said, we're definitely going to move right into the news roundup where we talk about some of those stories that you were talking about all throughout the week and we were talking and tweeting about. And this is our time to let our voices be heard. I know Alyssa wants to start us off. Right, yeah. So I don't know if you saw this. There was a piece in the New Yorker and it was about an action that happened right here in New York City. It was organized by the group that I actually volunteer with, the Police Reform Organizing Project, where they got together a bunch of people and they created these mock summonses that had information in them about the disproportionate number of black and brown people that are stopped by the police for low-level infractions. And what they did was they went to Park Slope, a notoriously white and liberal neighborhood. And the reason why they picked Park Slope is because they wanted to go somewhere where they would get empathy from these people and get them involved and get them in into the project versus potentially somewhere that has a more conservative bend, like, for example, Staten Island, where we they felt like they may not be able to connect. Now, obviously, the goal of the project is to eventually branch out into places where there's not going to be as much connection and to raise awareness. But essentially what they did was they fake ticketed people mm. in these neighborhoods who were committing low-level infractions, like riding a bike on the sidewalk or spitting or any of the things that mostly black and brown people living in low-income community of color get ticketed for and summonsed for all the time that white people living in Park Slope don't generally get summonsed for. So it was really successful. Um, and actually, uh, if you read the article, apparently some woman who was riding her bike on the sidewalk like basically blew it off and had her white privilege moment as I call it where she was like yeah well you know this is park slope and like that was the whole (laughs) did did they arrest anybody for taking out their garbage because you know this happened to me right exactly (laughs) so um, you know but speaking of prop uh, and other good things that prop are doing prop um, the group that held this action in park slope is actually going to be holding a big public forum it's tomorrow night it is from 6 to 8 p.m. right here in Harlem at the Obsidian Baptist Church on West 138th Street. Sorry. I botched that. Um, <laughs> the Reverend Calvin O. Butts, who's the pastor at the church, he will welcome the attendees. And uh, Kai Wright, who is the features editor from The Nation magazine, will be moderating the discussion. On the panel is going to be a family member of the NYPD, Ruby Aguirre, Ida DuPont, who's a professor of sociology at Pace University, my boss, Joshua Fitch, who is a partner at Conan Fitch. We are working on police abuse cases and um, on the summons class action, Stinson versus the city of New York, along with uh, Eleanor Sutton, who's 
from uh, Quinn Emanuel. She's going to be on the panel. Adele Polanco, who's the police officer who's suing the city. Adele? Um, not that Adele. And oh. uh, last but not least is going to be Jose Mar Trujillo, who's an activist with the Coalition to End Broken Windows Policing, who is based out of East Harlem. So it's going to yeah. be a great panel. Definitely. It's tomorrow night right here in Harlem at the, say for me, Abyssinian Baptist Church. Church on West 138th Street tomorrow, 6 p.m. Definitely be there. Come check it out. It's really going to be a great conversation. Fun Definitely. fact, Calvin Butts is also the president of Selena and I's um, alma mater, yep. SUNY Old Westbury. So shout out to Old Westbury and President slash Reverend Calvin Butts. Speaking of... Kappa. <laughs> okay, Sam. You just want to add in his whole profile in there. Um, so, so speaking of, so Alyssa brought up that story about racial tension and just the the fact that um, you know white people have been getting away with everything where black people don't in a different low community, uh, different communities of color. And I wanted to bring up and shout out the students all across the nation, starting at the University of Missouri, then at Yale, then at Columbia, then at, um, there was other colleges in Michigan and New York. They have been doing so much on the ground activism when it comes to fighting anti-black racism. So I don't know if you guys have been following what's been going on at the the University of Missouri, but what happened is they've been spending months talking about the many racial incidents that happened on their campus, and basically they weren't, they they weren't getting any type of feedback when they were bringing these issues up against um, when they were bringing these issues to the administrators at the school and especially not the type of um, they weren't being reciprocated by their president either. So what they did was they took it to the streets. They protested. They went on a hunger strike. They and they just um, they continued to use social media as well to galvanize support around these issues and to say that, you know what, racism on our campus stops here. We're paying the same amount of money that every other student is why do we have to be discriminated against why do we have to be practicing for a play recital in which there so these black students were practicing for a recital and this white student just comes on stage and just starts hitting them with all of these racial slurs and remarks and then someone th- drew a swastika um, um a swastika sign in feces in feces on a resident hall bathroom oh, that's classy like and, and and I'm just like and the, so the students had enough of it and they protested and they finally got their president of that school oisted and that has sparked a whole social movement on campuses all across the nation because you know racism is dead because we have black president <laughs> he's Stanley. black I thought he was never mind I can't say that on air so I just want to point out a couple yeah. things I'm gonna throw some cold water on this Selena, oh, and, yeah, and sure. I'm sorry the only reason the president resigned was because the football team threatened not to play that's and right. you know the football team is full of black and black blacks and once you, and that would have cost him a million dollars per game. No, it is that's very effective. effective. Yeah. But like, no, that's very effective. But I want to point that out. And I also wanted to say that since that has happened, they've had several protests on campus, not the black students, but white students who stood outside the black dorms and shouted white power. The KKK came on campus and was throwing bricks through windows. And it's brought up this huge debate, which I actually was going to pitch as a segment, but I didn't know if we'd have like enough to talk about within that framework of like if maybe students of color should be going to historically black and Latino mm-hmm. schools because of this. Because in my mind, it's like it's Missouri. Who didn't think that you'd have the good old boy system out there? They, they had faculty calling students the n-word and they were reporting it and they were like uh well you know black and the black black like what is your it's missouri 
I mean, yeah. But, and, like, um, that shouldn't be a good enough excuse. Like, oh, it's Missouri. Yeah, it is. But we have to have a conversation about yeah. why this is still happening in America in 2015. And we know that there's a lot of factors that come into play with that. But, you know, like, I get where you're coming from, but we still can't chalk it up to, like, oh, yeah, it's Missouri. Oh, it's Mississippi. Oh, it's Louisiana. We should expect that. Like, we should put our foot down and say racism, racism isn't cool. And it's not cool whether it happens in New York, right here in New York City, or whether it happens in Louisiana, where we expect it or even if it happens in Paris where we don't particularly expect it. I do and I did when I was there. Well you know what guys if you want to call in and give us your opinion which we hope you do without the curse words the number is 212-650-6903 again that is 212-650-6903 or you can tweet us at beheard underscore radio. I hate to say it but listen guys I expect nothing less from places like Missouri and St. Louis and Alabama and South Carolina and Staten Island and anywhere because at the end of the day, the further away we get from the height of the civil rights movement, the closer we get to the same nonsense that caused it. Well, I mean, you can expect that, but that's why it's so important for us to support groups like Black Lives Matter who have made tremendous progress just within the last year. They have gotten the 2016 candidates to talk about criminal justice reform and racial issues as one of the main parts of their of their platforms throughout this race. They have also gotten um, um, President Barack Obama to talk about Black Lives Matter. The whole nation is talking about it and they've also been the reason why a number of police reforms have been taking place. Vision Number zero. one, right, Vision Zero, in addition to body cameras all across the nation. So, I mean, like, for, I mean, Sally, your view sounds very pessimistic. I think that when it comes to these racist acts, we can expect it all we want, but you know what I expect even more? I expect people like us and people like Black Lives Matter to speak out against it. And I do not agree that we need segregation again. I think what? that we need, because you were like, should black students only go to HBC? use no. i think that well my opinion is i know that, that there's a lot of controversy and a I'm debate saying. over that well you know you can clarify but there's still people who say that this is why we never should have tried to integrate this is why we only should have stick to our own colleges there's people that say that right. if you weren't saying that that's fine but yeah, to just to answer that. them okay no but i'm glad that you did clarify but just to answer them i don't think that's the solution i think that we are just as good to go to any ivy league school and whether it's predominantly white our presence needs to be there our voices need to be heard and we're doing the right thing by counteracting all of their racist acts. So just to be clear, I was not saying we should go back to segregation. I was not saying we should only go back, we should only go to historically black colleges. I was saying I, w- I thought it might be a good idea to talk about it as a segment. I do not agree with that. And I am pessimistic. I, I very much so am because I'm just burnt out. Do you know they still have not come up with a decision on whether to take the cop that shot Samir Rice yet? But they've leaked another report of a cop saying that, hey, it was justified to shoot him. Well, yeah, the third report did come out last week. And the reason why is because the prosecutor's office is extremely biased. They're using the same cops that have testified in other, the same um, the same police experts who I, have I testified in other, well, I'm not, uh, oh, okay. No, no, I was like, I was, I was trying to get there. I was saying. Oh, I thought you were done. No. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Yo, Selena's fired. I got to give you a high five. She's fired up. I'm, wi- Yo, I'm with you. Like, I'm up. with you. We're together. Okay, we're together. Yeah. I'm sorry. Maybe I thought that, <laughs> like, Stanley was, like, we, on the other we side. Need to get no. That. We need to get that clip of Obama going, you fired up? Yeah. Ready to go? <laughs> you fired up? Yeah. 
<laughs> I'm awake now. No, Anyways. no. I was like expressing frustration about that. That's what I was going to say. But I'm with you because like, they, no, no, it's okay. <laughs> it's like, yeah, now Selena's pumped up about this. I think we all are. It gets so, like, it gets so hard to keep fighting these battles. And then you have people like Chris Christie who's running for president saying, oh, if the Black Lives Matter people come to me, I'm going to tell them to get the F out of my face. I don't want to well, talk to Chris them. Chris Christie is a troll. But you know what? Speaking of Chris Christie and other governors... I don't know if you heard. This is actually other news that impacts New York. Um, it is that the governor here, Cuomo, actually vetoed a proposal to build a liquefied natural gas terminal 19 miles off of Jones Beach. Um, that was known as Port Ambrose. It was supposed to be a deep water docking station. And the idea was to supply the downstate region with cheaper natural gas that they were going to bring in from the Caribbean using tankers. But when he announced the veto, uh, Governor Cuomo said that there were several reasons why he was vetoing it. One of them being he said that Al Qaeda has threatened to target such a facility Two, Superstorm Sandy was very powerful and it could damage the whole infrastructure. Uh, he said three, the port would harm the vital commercial sk- squid and scallop fishing industry which I don't know if you know on Long Island, fishing and scalloping and uh, all kinds of industry regarding the seafood uh, industry, sorry, uh, or works off of those waters. And uh, altogether, he said, when you put all the things together, the reward of was not worth the risk. Uh, some residents are kind of pissed off because they thought it was going to help to lower the prices of oil and gas. But most residents, um, coastal residents, public officials and activists from the surfers to the Sierra Club gave the governor a standing ovation uh, for doing this veto. And in fact, he was joined by Republicans, which is very strange. Um, Republicans from Long Island, from local government, actually joined him and said, we love Long Island. We love Long Island beaches and we do not want to see a kind of environmental disaster that could happen. However, they could always try and renew the proposal and then this is going to start all over again. Stanley? Yes, and I want to jump in on this because my organization that I work for, We Act for Environmental Justice, has been very active on this. Another reason that he rejected the plan for this place is because that is a prime area they're looking to put a wind farm there. Yes. And that wind farm would power up to 700,000 homes with clean energy. So what people don't realize is that like when you're putting up a new like natural gas station like there, what happens is that like you're hurting the amount of power that can come to that area because like it's just like bundling through that's one and two right now whenever like there's times where like a lot of people are using energy so say in the summer when it's really hot and people are bringing their acs con ed has to make sure that energy is reliable so they have like these separate like power plants in the bronx and in east harlem that are just off and then when the peak energy time comes they put it on and it pumps out these bad fumes into the air that hurts the quality of air that makes us sick and that helps to exacerbate things like asthma which we all know is a huge problem in East Harlem so this is not just a victory for Long Island it's a victory for South Bronx for right. East Harlem for Central Harlem it's a really big win for all of us no it, it definitely is and speaking of victories I wanted to bring it down or actually out to Utah there was also a, a great victory so there was this lesbian couple that adopted several children and then they had like a nine month baby girl but then somehow a utah judge um he he ordered and he we put down a sentence where he said that that baby had to be removed from their home and then he cited some like misinformation saying that well um when children are being raised in a home with um homosexual parents they're somehow in harm or danger and that that baby i don't know I don't, I don't know. And he was like, so basically what happened is, you know, he had to reverse the decision because of the backlash. And then the a- I think it was the um, the ACLU put out a statement saying, no, 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 not the ACLU. But there was another organization that put out a statement saying there is no factual evidence or data to prove that a child will be hurt by not, being raised in, in, a, in a, a same-sex parent home. Not only is there no data to support that, there's data.
data to support the opposite of that. They actually did a study to see which couples are the most likely to stay together over long periods of time. And what they found was that the most likely couple pairing of people to not get divorced is actually two women. Um, I didn't know that, Alyssa. The divorce rate amongst uh, gay women, although like gay marriage is very, very new. So this obviously may change. And, you know, there may you may see the divorce rate go up. But at least right now, when they don't think they've just looked at America, I think they've looked at countries like Canada, that uh, same sex marriage has been legal for quite a long time, over 10 year period, long enough for people to get married and then potentially want to get divorced. Um, But they find that the divorce rate amongst lesbian couples is extremely low compared to the divorce rate of uh, heterosexual couples and also that they find that lesbian couples in some ways provide the most stable homes for children. So very, very interesting. That that has to do, I think, probably with two women. And I don't just speak, you know, (laughs) on I don't just say that because of my own, you know, personal status. I say that, you know, just from the scientific studies or sociological studies, I should say that. Well, did you know that marriage is the number one cause of divorce? So watch yourself. yourself Did you know that life is the number one cause of death? (laughs) Is it? (laughs) That's funny. Did you know um, jumping is the number one cause of coming down because of gravity? No, it's not. There's there's another cause for that, coming down. All right, guys. I I tried. You know, speaking of gravity, actually, if I can just get... (laughs) No, this is actually going to be a good transition. So um, my uh, law firm actually filed this week our certification motion on the Clay case, which we had my boss on to speak about earlier in the year. We did a little uh, short, like special segment on that and actually we just filed our motion and we're arguing that the NYPD's quote unquote test to test these quote unquote gravity knives is totally you know inconsistent with the what the actual law says and therefore uh, something like or we're estimating based on our uh, pre-certification discovery that 99% of the people who are arrested for having a gravity knife whose cases were dismissed uh, did not actually possess an illegal knife they possessed a totally legal knife and that the disproportionate number of arrests for people having legal knives is due to the fact that the NYPD actually has no idea how to identify what a gravity knife is from what isn't a gravity knife and or employs the wrong test in trying to figure out what a gravity knife is. So that's going to be really interesting as it moves forward. And I'll definitely keep you guys posted uh, if you are interested. Maybe and if some you more wanna, training. Yeah, yeah. And if you want to hear that show, because we actually did do that show, you can check it out on either Scatter Radio or on iTunes Podcast or on Stitcher because the, we do have Stitcher as well. Yeah, the name of the case is Clay versus the City of New York. There we right. go. Well, speaking of things that are ridiculous, because for the NYPD to not be able able to, to tell which knife is which and then just arrest the people horrible another thing that's horrible was donald trump's 95 minute tirade against ben carson the thing is i'm not a supporter of either but the fact that he just stood up there and did almost like a performance theater piece that's just all talking. he ever does but, but the thing is he also berated um supporters of trump so he called voters stupid he was in iowa and he was like iowa you you guys are so stupid because like Apparently, Ben Carson is doing well in Iowa. But one thing I wanted to say, Ben Carson had the best comeback ever. He was like... He stabbed him? No, he didn't. (laughs) He stopped that. You know he doesn't stab people anymore. Let's give the man some benefit. (laughs) He's... That was point he did. That was like decades ago, which vote he said. For, vote for Ben Carson. He's going to stab ISIS. No, well, I mean, I hey. <laughs> what he did say, it was the best comeback ever. He was like, so um, maybe, maybe Donald Trump needs to learn what the word... 
pathological means because he kept saying over and over, yeah, um, Ben Carson has a pathological disease, which is incurable. And he just kept making this big thing. And he was so Ben Carson was just simply like, I hope his um, advisors help him define that word. Pathological in no way connotes something that is incurable. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what happened. But we'll just continue to focus on the issues. So I commend Ben Carson for always maintaining such a controlled demeanor and just <laughs> I don't know he is Alyssa you're he, his, his demeanor is controlled until he comes to stab you <laughs> that's why you're like no he's like, oh my god I think uh, Alyssa's on the Trump camp when it comes to that issue in particular like I don't, I don't believe that he's he's violent anymore but you know everyone has a past so you know it is what it is on that but um, speaking of that guys I just want to let everyone know that in a few more moments we are going to be speaking about the legality of underage sexting Sex this thing. is what the millennials young people the youth are all doing but and cool kids except for you because you're not except cool. for me except for me but some of them as young as 11 to 15 years old are being prosecuted and arrested for sexting we're going to talk about that right after this break don't go anywhere i love sexting you oh god that was on horrible. the cell phone i'll be sending you nipple pics <laughs> Uh-huh. uh-huh. Really? Can we say nipple on air? I, I hope know. so. I hope it's so. not a curse word. No, it's a, it's a, no, we can say it. It's anatomy. I'm going to sex you just, right now. You Hold on, guys. You just can't say, you can't, you cannot say the version of that word oh. that starts with a T, because that's one right, yeah, that of oh. the that's seven explicit. dirty words. I love it when you put your finger. Stanley, oh, you're being guys. explicit enough. We don't need you to sext on air, okay? You know what case that is? The sexter? No, that's that's George Carlin, FCC versus Pacifica. Oh, yeah, I that. That determines what we can say here on the air. You used to sex me on my cell phone. Is that what happened? But then I used up my data plan. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> so now we got a FaceTime. Oh, God. <laughs> That's good. All right. We're back. <laughs> this is Let Your Voice Be Heard. My name is Selena Hill. I'm here with Stanley Fritz. And Alyssa Fuchs. And Selena has no friends and she's not cool. So Stop she it. Sex. Because I don't par- engage in sexting. Look, you don't drink this either. Is not, this is not about me. Okay. <laughs> this you is not about me. You don't sext. <laughs> you don't smoke. <laughs> what what do you do? No, I'm but listen, Selena. Selena was getting down last night regardless. So. Yeah, she can really party. Sometimes I think she's on Molly because <laughs> she's so hype. She's like, <laughs> all right, guys. Look, we got to bring it back to the the topic at hand. I'm having so much fun. <laughs> yeah, well, we're having fun talking <laughs> about sexting. Stanley, stop it with the sexting. All right, I'm gonna go sex with my phone. All right, let's get serious. All right, guys, can you remember when you were 16 years old and you had your first love? You couldn't stop thinking about them. You wanted to spend all your time with them. And you may have likely started experiencing with sex. You may have even gotten a third base, Stanley. I actually got the first and thrown out. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I read Sucker for Love. No, I read your first book and you, you talked about that. Well, the, the point is, here's the point. The reason I bring this up is because the only difference between teens today and teens of the past in, in past generations is technology. Many teens are engaging in a practice called sexting where they send each other explicitly, uh, sexually explicit photos and messages. So basically what I'm saying is when we were teenagers, we may have participated in some of, like, some of that kinky behavior or, you know, whatever you call you it. You may have passed a note or two. Yeah, I made a, a mixtape and I'll put pony from Roses Genuine. are red, come flowers pony. are blue. Come to my mom's house and tonight. ride my pony. And I'll sleep with you. Right, but, but so that's what I'm saying. You may have passed a note in class. You may have experienced started experiencing with your own sexuality things like this happen in our adolescent years however studies show that today's teens 
more and more of them are viewing sexting as this normal interaction that occurs between them and their friends, whereas other people are just seeing it as a form of flirtation. So instead of just like, you know, hand-holding or passing notes, they're like, well, I'll hit you up after 10 tonight and we're going to sext. They don't make, they don't say it that formally, but that's what's going on, basically. And I wanted to mention that there's a study from Drexel University that shows that 54% of college students said that they have either sent or received, and I quote, sexually explicit text messages or image images before they turned 18 years old. Over half of the population have started sexting before they're 18, right? So they're all engaging into this act. However, many are not aware of the many legal consequences that can come about when sexting, um, when, they, when they engage in sexting, because most states do not have laws that govern sexting. That means if a minor sends a nude or a sexually explicit image to another minor, he or she excuse me, can be charged under child pornography laws. These statutes typically carry uh, severe sentences, meaning they can have jail time or they can even have to be forced to register as a sex offender. So today we're going to talk about the phenomenon of sexting and just how dangerous it can be for underage people. And again, if you are not a young person that is younger than the age of 18 engaging in sexting, I bet you you know somebody that is, and you just don't know that they're doing that. Why do you sound so excited about underage sexting? I'm not, but Stanley, I'm excited just to talk about this. Oh, okay. And, and it's, you know, as Selena brings up, it's a real issue because of the way that the federal child pornography laws and state child pornography laws interact with this uh, we'll call common, as you point out, behavior amongst teenagers um, and also the collateral consequences that you brought up, like having to register as a sex offender, which is something that will then follow you around and can affect where you can live um, and, you know, schooling and a lot of other things in these kids' lives. So these kids could be engaging in teens in what they think is some sort of uh, relatively innocuous behavior where they are having a flirtation with somebody and they snap a picture of themselves and they send it. um, And then that can turn into something that becomes criminal and then follows them for the rest of their lives. So it's definitely a big issue. I'm really glad that we're talking about it today. And, um, you know, I think the biggest thing is, you know, we want to protect kids, but how we have to come up with a solution on how, you know, these two things have to interact together. Selena? Right. So I want to get to the guests that we have on the line. We have on the line with us Heather Elias Kukolo, who is the director of New York Law School's Mental Disability Law Program. And she is an expert on sex offender law. And fun fact... Alyssa took her class when Alyssa was attending NYU. And uh, New York Law School. But New yes, York Law School. I'm sorry. Um, I did me. take her class. It was a great class. It's one of my favorite classes. And I'm not just saying that because she's on the line. I actually really Aww. enjoyed the class. And it was really interesting. And I learned a lot from it. And that's why I wanted to have this discussion today. No, exactly. Um, uh, Heather, are you there? Good afternoon. I'm, I'm here. Okay. Um, we might Alyssa need to check. I'm sorry? Oh, I said thank you, Alyssa, for that very kind... Um, compliments on, on the sex offender course. Um, right. So, so Heather, I want to start off by just having people understand the reality of what's going on. So there were these high school sweethearts. They were 16 years old, and they traded nude cell phone pictures. There was no ever evidence of harassment or corrosion. But under a literal interpretation of North Carolina law, each had distributed child pornography. How did people find out? Well, we'll 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 get to that. 
So what happened was they were charged with the felony of exploiting a minor, which could have brought them years in prison and decades on the sex offender registry. However, a number of people started protesting and saying that this is ridiculous. They're a couple. They're in love. They're 16. You know, this is a common behavior. We shouldn't make an example out of these two uh, teenagers or children. So eventually they just pled to a misdemeanor. But like Alyssa mentioned, you know, prosecutors now all over the nation are asking whether and how to charge teenage sexters. So, Heather, I wanted to get your take on that. How should should we be prosecuting uh, teen sexters? What do you think about that? Well, first of all, I think early on when you were kind of discussing the issue of what sexting is and how it is come about with the advancement of technology and it is in many ways seen as this new concept of flirting among teenagers. I mean, prior to cell phones, prior to sending these images, what did we have? We had individuals or teenagers engaging in some form of sexual act and then either, you know, talking about it, rumors, etc. And I think it's important really to look at is what are we concerned with here with this sexting? Is it are we concerned with the fact that we think that our teenagers are becoming more sexualized? Are we concerned with the fact that this is, you know, resulting in photographic images or pictures that can now be proof? Again, before we had this, it was sort of like a maybe he said, she said, right? So I think we really have to take a look at, you know, what is sexting? Why are we concerned with it? I know you spoke of the Drexel study. Um, according to that study as well, 28% of the uh, individuals that were uh, polled said that they sent actual photographs. Um, so I think also, too, let's just take a quick look, if right. we can, about the laws going on. Well, well before we do, Heather, let me just let me just um, jump in there because you brought up a good question. What is the big concern? And I think that a number of people are concerned, whether they're parents or they're mentors. What's happening is is you have these children. Some are engaging in casual sexing, some with relate, some in relationships, and these photos can easily be um, can easily be leaked out especially if there's a broken relationship and someone uses this in a form of revenge porn and they use it as cyberbullying or harassment, that's one concern. Another thing is when you have these, you have some children who actually made a sex tape. They were under the age of, um, I think they were under the age of 16. They made this sex tape and they put it on Twitter not knowing that, you know what, this can jeopardize your chances of getting into college. This could jeopardize your reputation amongst, you know, your peers or your administrators or, I mean, in, in society in general so they're making these decisions that if they were older and had they had a full brain they they might not necessarily be doing this to themselves and they might be taking their <laughs> lives more seriously oh, well wait a second though i'm so glad you brought that up because i know we're talking about teens and i know we're talking about the issue going on with teens but let's not forget there have been some significant high profile individuals and media driven stories of sexting. We had Anthony Weiner in New York on Twitter send a link uh, to, an ex- about, to an extremely sexually suggestive photo of himself to a 21-year-old woman in Seattle. Chris Hansen from To Catch a Predator admitted to sending sexually explicit photos to his mistress. Um, and it's not just a U.S. problem. We had uh, Peter Dowling in Australia, part of the Australia's Liberal National Party. You know, his career took a, a pretty significant dive um, when he had been found to have uh, sent sexually explicit texts. So the question is, right, are, are these teens thinking? i got to say, though, you know, one of the things that you kind of made me think of 
also is the fact that we for these laws to pick up where parents fall short. And you say kids are, you know, making these videos and sending these pictures. And is the problem is, is there not enough education? Is there not enough parental intervention? Is there not enough education going on at the beginning, at the outset, before we even have to talk about uh, sanctions and criminal penalties and the laws? Now, about 20 states have teen sexting laws. And as of 2012, I think there were an additional 13 states that are considering how to deal with this issue. And the thing is, is that in these states that have these laws, right, they're going to target sexting. And what they want to do is they, there's a chance that they could be charging this as a felony, as a misdemeanor. Okay. And the states, as you had mentioned, that don't have specific sexting laws mm-hmm. still have the option of charging juveniles under laws that target child pornography. Um, one as well, though, what we're talking about here is when we talk about child pornography, right, as you mentioned, this is something that can be extremely damaging. It can lead to, um, of course, a felony charge. It can lead to federal charges. It can lead, and most significantly, lead to registration notification um, and, and, and being basically marked for life, sort of a scarlet letter for right. life over this. Right. You make a really good point. I'm, and I want to jump in for a second. This is Stanley, by the way, and talk about a segment that Selena and I did almost four years ago now at a Westbury, where there was a young lady who performed um, oral sex on her boyfriend outside of the school. They recorded it and posted it online, and he was charged with sex offender charges. Mm-hmm. And in that case, I thought it was ver- it was just very justifiable because he used it as a way of like revenge porn against her. However, like to- I have a hard problem really digesting these laws because we teenagers are a rebellious and b have like eternal attitudes. Putting a law and telling them, telling them they can't do something is not going to help. Why aren't we just in, like emphasizing education more? It's like when you say that. It's like when you tell kids they should be abstinent until they're married. Most of them don't listen because the a they're rebellious, b they're teenagers so they're horny, and c you're a stupid adult. So what should happen when sexting turns into revenge porn? Well, in that case, that's when the hammer comes down. But if they're just sexting, like, like educate them on, like, hey, this is what could happen. This you should be careful of. Like the same way you would say, listen, you want to share this with somebody, make sure it's someone you care for, make sure it's someone you trust, make sure that like it's in a way that like they know they have to respect your privacy. Make sure you tell them and be very clear about that. And if they go further than you want them to, then you move forward. There was another celebrity who got caught with a sexting. Um, I Carly, I think it was. I don't know who her name is. She was dating um Kevin Drummond, a basketball player for the Detroit Pistons. They broke up. She said he was a bad kisser. All of a sudden, her lingerie photos popped up online. Mm, revenge point. So, so Stanley's bringing up a number of points, Heather, and I want to get your take on. You know, mm-hmm. it sounds like he's saying if it if the circumstances revolve around revenge porn and someone's being cyberbullied or harassed, they should be prosecuted even as a teenager. What is your take mm-hmm. on that? I think my take is going to be, I think, across the board, that when we're talking about teenagers, cr- in terms of criminal prosecution, I, I, can't, I don't see where that's going to have any real benefit. I do think that there needs to be sanctions. I do think that there needs to be a form of punishment, either administratively, even either civilly. Um, there's absolutely nothing wrong with having monetary punishment, monetary sanctions that I think will not only, you know, increase the awareness of parents that, of course, don't want to have to pay out because of these things. And there are other ways to deal with this thing criminally. Now, for instance, so we have New York does not have um, sexting legislation as of yet, but they do have what we call a diversion program 
New Jersey has sexting legislation, but has also instituted a diversion program. So New York has this 2012 Cybercrime Youth Rescue Act. And what it does is it allows teens who are caught sexting to avoid charges and to instead take an online course and up to eight hours of education about sexting and cyberbullying. And by the time this program ends, basically, the teens are going to be able to define both of these terms, explain the consequences, evaluate their behavior, how their behavior impacted others, and really create this sort of code of how to conduct themselves in the future regarding these issues. And New Jersey followed as well. They started a similar program um, and stating that in order to sort of benefit society in admitting a juvenile into an education program is definitely going to outweigh the harm that's done to society by, um, by issuing a criminal prosecution. Um, McCobb County, okay, um, this was a situation where a girl had faced felony charges posting on, a, on Twitter a photograph uh, oh, I'm sorry. Actually, there were three high school boys who yes. faced felony charges for posting a girl Twitter photograph of, of a sex, sex act that was engaged. And basically what the judge did was, under a youthful offender program, instead of instituting criminal charges, put them on probation for about three years in the condition that they have no contact with one another and or the girl. And and they, he actually barred them from using cell phones for at least a year. And I think if there's going to be any punishment for teens, it's potentially going to be a, uh, their inability to, to use their cell phones, which, of course, I think has become a basically extension of, of ourselves. Absolutely right, Heather. I think that's one of the best mechanisms that can take place in retaliation if you want to teach that teen a lesson is take their cell phone away from them. Do we have to put this teen in jail? Do we have to give them that experience as 11 years old of being down and taken into custody? That might do more mental trauma than anything else. But we, we're going to talk more about that after this quick, quick break. Don't go anywhere. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. That's all the believers, including Alyssa, who keeps requesting us to play Justin Bieber. Yeah, the new album is good. <laughs> it must be. All right, guys, we're back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. We're having a very engaging conversation about sexting, something that you're probably doing, and if not, the young people in your lives are probably doing, according <laughs> to statistics. So let's talk about it, right? Um, also, we have on the line with us a very special guest. Her name is Heather Elias Kukolo, and she is the director of New York New York Law School's Mental Disability Law Program, and she's an expert on sex offender law. Uh, Stanley? I'm really confused about something. If they're not leaking the, like, the sexting stuff online, how are they getting well, caught? Well, there was an investigation. So there what? was so there was a huge investigation that actually happened. Um, I forget which state it was in, but once they oh, started yeah, investigating um, all the, Colorado. Oh, Colorado, once they did that investigation, Colorado. they found more than 100 students had actually found, uh, were engaging in a sexting ring, and some of it was actually harassment and, and, and cyberbullying. So that answers your question of how that happened in Colorado. Colorado. Right. I actually want to go back to the conversation that we were having with the professor before we took the break. Um, and we were talking a lot about state laws and state sexting laws, but there's also yep. federal child pornography laws on the books, which, uh, fed, you know, under federal law prevent the distribution of child pornography. Um, and I was, I guess the question is twofold. One, is the Department of Justice doing the same kind of diversion type programs that some, that we see in being instituted in some of the states when they encounter, uh, child, uh, sexting and where that crosses the line 
from child sexting over into child pornography, potentially, uh, at least under the law. Um, and two, do we think that there's a difference between two teenagers that sex each other and between a teenager who gets a sext from somebody and then distributes it to all of his friends? Um, and should that person be treated differently under the federal distribution of child pornography laws um, than the person who's just exchanging it with somebody else in their class uh, due to the fact that they're distributing it wi- you know, more widely to other people? Professor? Yeah, I think that we have to be really careful. First, okay, we'll talk about the federal child pornography laws and sort of how it applies to sexing. And I think we have to be really careful, though, when we want to actually understand why it is and what our purpose is for enacting these child pornography laws versus what is actually occurring through sexting, right, and whether or not the sanctions are going to really be equal or or appropriate for what is going on. Now, there's the prosecutorial remedies and other tools. Um, basically, it's called the uh, and to end the exploitation of children today. It's the Protect Act of 2003, and what that is is it makes it illegal to produce, distribute, receive, or possess with the intent to distribute any obscene visual depiction of a minor engaging in sexually explicit conduct. Now, of course, when we're talking about in federal, let's make clear that, of course, these are pictures we're discussing, although it's important to note that in Colorado and other states, it does not have to be pictures to be prosecuted for texting. It can also be sexually explicit text, um, uh, basically words. Um, so what the federal law does is it criminalizes um, causing a minor to take part in sexually explicit conduct in order to visually depict that conduct. Now, there's also what we need to talk about is and the Adam Walsh Act and the Sex Offender Notification and Registration Act, because that's where we're going to get into what kind of the extent of the penalties are. All right, now, if you violate the PROTECT Act, okay, we're going back to the PROTECT Act, it's punishable by a fine up to 10 years imprisonment or both. And the same punishment applies to promoting or soliciting child pornography and causing a minor to take place in a sexually explicit conduct in order to make a photo or video is punishable by at least 15 to 30 years in prison. And distributing child pornography by computer is punishable by as much as 20 years in prison, all right? And now what we're really looking at here, though, of course, is this idea of the adults, adults above the age of 18 that are subjecting juveniles, children, preteens, teenagers to this type of activity. When we look at sort of how we deal with juveniles, right, it's in fact that the federal sex offender registration doesn't actually address this. Now, the Adam Walsh Act and SORNA will subject individuals age 14 and over to Sex Offender Notification and Registration Act under certain circumstances. And what it says is that under SORNA, a juvenile must register if the offender is 14 years of age or older at the time of the offense and the offense adjudicated was comparable to or more severe than aggravated sexual abuse or was an attempt or conspiracy to commit such an offense, okay? So the, the language we're really considering is comparable to severe aggravated sexual abuse. How do we define that? How do we understand that? Um, so it's important to also consider that a juvenile in certain states might have the potential of being prosecuted as an adult in these crimes. If that's the case, SORNA is, is out automatically going to come into play when the individual is going to have to register, most likely, uh, for life. Now, SORNA does not recommend that 
it, or it, there is no language in SORNA that really issues prosecuting uh, juveniles for sexting. Mm. But it's undetermined, and it really is all depending on how these things are dealt with in the states. Right. Also, federally, the federal laws really do kind of... Um, uh, prefer that these issues be dealt on a state level ra- rather than a federal level. Right. Um, so many great points. And, you know, you brought up the severity of these um, of the sentences that could actually happen if these children and teens are actually prosecuted, brought to trial, etc. But the thing is, I, and I understand that it seems like we're advocating and we're pushing for more education to combat sexting and to, to try to educate our teens so that they can make responsible choices. But I'm thinking about it this way. If I can tell my teen, look, if you sext, you can face jail time. That's a great deterrent. No. Like, I mean, I mean, I mean. But is it? Is it? It's I mean, not. That's the question. I don't think is they it? know. They don't think they understand the ramifications and the severity. And they're just being hit with it afterwards. They'll just sext on Snapchat where it disappears after you send it. But and uh, can, I, can I actually read a comment about, like, the other options for what you do to teenagers? So Real World Dropouts on Twitter said, I don't think there is enough education or communication or about sexuality or the internet between parents and teens. Instead of threatening jail time, maybe if we did more of that, we'd be in a better situation. And she goes, or even about how sex and the internet plays such a big part in adolescent lives. You have adolescents who are learning about sex through pornography and videos that get sent by people they're dating or flirting with while parents are afraid to even talk about sex in general. And the schools can't talk about it because some crazy right-wing person who claims to be religious doesn't want them to talk about it. No, great points. Right, no, and I just wanted to add to that because there's just this level of, you know, what are we... You know, kids, we, we say all the time, teens being teens, right? This kind of conduct, in some ways, we can say has been happening even prior to cell phones. Yeah. What's interesting about it is that now that we have technology and that we have the cell phones, now the laws that were originally written to protect the children uh, from being exploited by adults that were going to take sexually explicit pictures of these children, put them up on the Internet, distribute them, are now the very laws that are potentially going to be used to criminalize the children children that they were eventually made to protect. And so that really, to me, makes us say, hey, maybe we need to look at our laws and we maybe need to figure out a way to amend them to add in certain exceptions and add in certain, you know, you know, like diversion programs, as the professor points out, in order to deal with this, because we shouldn't be using, in my, in my opinion, we should not be using the laws that we created to protect children from adult predators in order to now prosecute the children for engaging in behavior that I don't, that I wouldn't call enough but I don't think is necessarily out of the norm of the behavior that teenagers engage in now or have engaged in in the past prior to cell phones. The only reason these laws are being implicated now is because of the digital nature of the world we live in today. Teenagers Uh, are horny and irresponsible. um, Great point, Alyssa. That actually uh, segues right into the last question that I wanted to ask Heather. We have online again with us, Heather Kugelo, who is an expert on sex offender law. I wanted to ask you, should these laws on child pornography be changed and, and and if so, how? How can we do that, and how do they need to be changed? Okay, I want to just really quickly just sort of address though what was stated about this sort of threat of jail time. How often do we really see threats actually working in, in for for our teenagers? Maybe I think a better approach here is to explain to them how to have you know more dignity for themselves, how to make sure that they are respecting their bodies, that they are respecting sort of how they're going to be perceived by others, understanding long-term effects 
of if a picture or, or a nude picture or a sexually explicit picture of them is out there somewhere, regardless, of course, of how to extreme it goes. But I think at the, at the outset we need to address that. Now, you know, how to better deal with this? You know, let's see. I, all I can do is I can tell you, okay, California lawmakers, um, they, they were pushing to have teen sexters expelled from school. Florida lawmakers were voting to punish sexting with a $60 fine and community service. Um, Vermont, again, does the diverted to a juvenile program, no sex offender registry requirements, a record expungement at age 18. And basically, Rhode Island says, look, let's make the first offense a misdemeanor, and we'll refer the teen to family court and absolutely no sex offender registration. Now, Interestingly, South Dakota in 2011 wanted to pass a law that have, would have distinguished between consensual or experimental juvenile sexting with aggravated juvenile sexting, which situations where teens are coerced or bullied. Um, but that, that law was not successful. It's not successfully passed. So what do we do? What are our solutions here? And right. I think that's a great question and something that we have to take a look at. I, I do think, though, that this country has a, a continued history of passing legislation in a passionate, immediate response to events that blow up in the media and events that occur without taking a look at what is really going to help, what is really going to be beneficial, what exactly are we looking at here? And we have to go back to the even the first point that we talked about is what are we trying to protect? What are we trying to prevent against? Is this child pornography where they're dis- distributing it for for uh, financial and, and sexual enjoyment? Is this just kids being kids? Look, like I said, back in the day, rumors, you know, you know, having your reputation ruined um, by, by, by verbal rumors that go on. And I think that there are different things that we can consider, and I think diversion programs are a good idea. I think education is a good idea. Um, hey, look, I, I'm not above, you know, making parents more culpable in these situations because I have to say when all is said and done when we see the trends of this country we are leaving it up to the lawmakers and the schools to parent our children and the fact is is it's got to come back to at home Heather thank you so much again for that and for joining us today please let our listeners know how they can get in touch with you um, and the work that you do Absolutely. I have a company formed with Professor Michael Perlin. Um, you can always check out my website at www.mdlpa.net. Um, also, I'm part of the New York Law School adjunct faculty, and I can always be reached through that as well. Thank you again, Heather, for joining us here. I just want to wrap up and say that I think the solution is definitely education. It seems like that's the solution for so many issues that we talk about because the fact of the matter is a lot of these teens are engaging in this risky behavior, not knowing or understanding the ramifications that could happen to their personal lives and legally because they might live in a state in which, you know, if you sex and you're at a certain age, you could be criminally prosecuted. So that's the thing. We need to educate our children on why sexing is probably not the best idea, to, especially if you're in, um, under the age of 13 and you're doing it casually. There's a big difference between flirting. There's a big difference in not just having a self-esteem and a self-worth and, and not feeling good about yourself and feeling like the only way I can get attention is if I send a picture, if I send somebody a picture of whatever's on my body. And, you know, and, and it's not the type of attention that they should be seeking, especially at such a young age. So I think that what we need to do as adults 
adults, as parents, and as people that know better, we need to make sure that we're invested in the lives of our children to know that, you know what, a lot of times when you're going through those awkward preteen and teen years, you don't feel good about yourself, and you'll just do what the media is telling you to do, or you'll try to, you know, take that same trajectory that Kim Kardashian did or something, and, you know, those people are your idols. And you're like, well, if they put out a sex tape, if they can take a bikini picture, why can't I get a lot of likes? And that's what they're doing. So, again, it's about education and making sure that we let our teens know that might not be the route that you want to go down. Uh, And on that note, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to be talking about the continuation of the war on women. And we are back. And I just want to, again, thank the professor for coming on. Shout out to New York Law School. Um, I went there. The teaching staff there is great. Um, I know Professor Michael Perlin as well. Um, and actually, I'll use that as a way to piggyback off of Selena's comments about education. So um, a big meme that kind of blew up one day that my friend Manny actually made. And it was like a four boxes, right? And it said, if you don't want to talk to your kids about this, um, you know, and it said sex ed, and it said, and if you don't want to, if you want to make sure that women cannot get this, and it said birth control, and then it said, then don't be surprised when your daughter comes home and says she needs one of these. What is this thing that she might need? Vodka. No. Abortion. There you go. Oh. So if you don't want to talk about sex ed and you don't want to provide birth control, then guess what? Your daughter's probably going to come home and say, hey, I need an abortion. Uh, So speaking of abortions and birth controls, uh, the Supreme Court decided over this past week and a half to hear two cases whose outcomes will probably have major impacts on women's health. Um, SCOTUS is now wading into the quote unquote war on women fray. I'm going to talk about both of these cases. The first one is Little Sisters of the Poor, Home for the Aged versus Burwell. And the second case is Whole Women's Health versus Cole. Uh, the first case deals with birth control and the second case deals with abortion. So that is a perfect segue from our last segment about how sex can, you know, lead to these other things or you may need these other things. And maybe if you have birth control, then you probably won't need an abortion because uh, at the end of the day, the best way to prevent abortions is birth control. Um, so Little Sisters of the Poor, there are two issues that are going to be up in front of the court. And the first is whether the availability of regular regulatory method for nonprofit religious employers to comply with the Department of Health and Human Services contraceptive mandate eliminates the either the substantial burden on religious exercise or whether it's a violation of the Religious Freedom uh, Reformation Act that the court rep- recognized in the Hobby Lobby case. And two, whether um, the Department of Health and Human Services satisfies the Religious Freedom Reformations Act demanding tests for an overriding sincerely held religious objection uh, in circumstances where HHS insists that the overriding religious objection does not fulfill its regulatory objective. So what am I talking about? Because I just use a lot of really big words and you're probably like, huh? What is going on? What is she talking about? Okay, so first thing you need to know, one, this is not the same as the contraceptive mandate controversy that the court reviewed in Hobby Lobby. That dispute was about for-profit businesses that are owned by religiously devout individuals who oppose contraceptive mandates. This is about non-for-profit religions that are not already given an exemption because certain religious groups already get an exemption. So what happened was is um, some of these non-for-profit groups said, hey, 
um, you know, we want an exception. And so the Department of Health and Human Services came up with an option, which is, okay, fill out this form, which is called the EBSA 700. And um, when you fill out this form and then the federal government will step in and it will provide the birth control so that you don't have to do it. Um, now, as you know, the Affordable Care Act makes the free availability of contraceptives uh, available to all female employees of any organization that has an employee health plan. Some of those organizations, as I already mentioned, such churches and synagogues, uh, they get exempted up front. Um, but other organizations that are not included in this upfront exemption have to fill out this EBSA Form 700. That's the document that's used to gain the religious exemption. If the religious organization wants the exemption, they fill out the form, and then the plans operator decides to give the birth control directly to the female workers um, so that the non-for-profit doesn't have to be involved. Um, and so this form requires that a person who is applying in the organization to certify that on an account of a religious objection, the organizer opposes to providing coverage for either some or all contraceptive services. Uh, once they do that, um, the plan kicks in. So what Little Sisters of the Poor is actually saying is that they have to fill out this form to begin with. They're saying that filling out this form in order for the federal government to jump in and stand in their shoes and provide the birth control makes them complicit in providing the birth control. So what this all comes down is the government was trying to be accommodating to these religious groups and actually provided them with a workaround, said, hey, fill out this form, tell us you have an objection, and then we will deal with it. But now these groups are saying, hey, filling out the form is essentially like providing the birth control. Do you want to ask a question? Ridiculous. Now, look, I love Christians and Christianity, but not that extreme form. Ridiculous. Okay, so the federal government says, no, 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 no. That's not how this works at all. They said once the form is filled out by the religious organization, uh, that ends the religious organization's involvement in the Affordable Care Act program. Um, and so the government contends that it cannot be correct for an uh, organization to desire religious accommodation, but then be against filling out the form that the government is creating in order for them to get the religious accommodation that they're asking for. Um, and the federal government says that signing the form is just a simple way for the religious organization like Little Sisters of the Poor to avoid what they regard as a sin, be it, you know, providing contra contraceptives or other pregnancy-related services. But, like I said, Little Sisters counter that the, the signing the form would amount to an act that violates their faith because it clears the way for those services to be provided by employers. Um, so, all in all, this is going to go to the Supreme Court, and if the Supreme Court decides that filling out the form in and of itself is, you know, going against their religion, then that's going to create a situation where how, how is these organizations going to let the government know, like, hey, you need to kick in. And so essentially it, that means there may be a group of women, depending on what the Supreme Court decides, that no longer have access to birth control because they work for one of these non-for-profits and there's now no way for this non-for-profit to tell the government we don't want to provide it. And it creates a catch-22 situation. Hopefully the court will see this for what it is as semantical BS, um, as right, we will call it, it on this show. Cook. But, you know, who knows with the Supreme Court how they're going to go? Like, you know, they've upheld Obamacare twice. But the fact that they just they took this case, right. I don't know. Um, 
Anyway, so that is the birth control case. Now let's transition into the abortion case because at the end of the day, if you don't get birth control, you might need an abortion. And guess what? Texas wants to make it really, really, really difficult for you to get an abortion if you need one. Now, one thing, nobody is really pro-abortion. I hate that term. People are pro-choice. Nobody's really pro-abortion, okay? Everybody wants to get to a situation where we make abortion as rare as possible. But the way to get to that place is through sex education and through both control. And when we're still having fights about whether or not we want to provide birth control, then we can't deal with the issue of how to make abortions more rare. Well, Texas thinks that they can make an abortion more rare, and the way they want to do that is just say, hey, well, you just can't get one here in Texas, as if that's going to, you know, really get rid of the issue. So um, in this case, this is whole women's health versus call. Uh, there are two issues. One, which is whether the undue burden standard, which comes from Planned Parenthood versus Casey, that's the 1992 case which set the standard for uh, abortions in America following Roe versus Wade. Um, uh, whether or not these laws actually are an undue burden that restrict abortion, um, or two, whether the lower court erred in concluding that uh, this standard permits Texas to enforce in nearly all circumstances laws that would cause a significant reduction in the availability of abortions in the state. Um, so in recent years, the Supreme Court has actually stayed out of this decades-long battle over abortion, but as I pointed out, Friday afternoon they announced that they would actually review this law. Um, this law is what's called a trap law. Basically, what Texas said was that we are going to, well, actually, first off, they can, they say that this law is intended to actually protect women's health. And what they say is that in order to perform an abortion services, your abortion clinic has to be set up like what's called an ambulatory sur- surgical center, which is a place where people go to have minor surgical procedures. Um, and two, that you have to have admitting privileges at a hospital, um, among some other things which I'm not going to get into. Now, let's go back a second. A quarter century ago, the Supreme Court in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, they affirmed Roe versus Wade. They held that a woman has the right to terminate her pregnancy in its early stages, but they also wrote, ruled that states can impose restrictions on that right as long as those restrictions do not impose an undue burden on the mother. Um, if a law imposes an undue burden, then the law will be struck down. Now, in 2013, everybody heard about this. Texas passed HB2 over the filibuster. That was Wendy Davis. You probably remember that. Um, and these requirements say that physicians who perform abortions have to, A, have admitting privileges, which are basically impossible to get unless you're going to admit 20 or 30 patients to a hospital a year, which there's fairly no complications with abortions. So there was there's really no need for doctors to actually have admitting privileges. And two, that these actual facilities have to be modified in order to be ambulatory surgical centers, which all medical professionals say are not needed to perform the types of abortions that are being performed. So essentially, the state of Texas is using these laws. They're saying we're trying to protect women's health, but in reality, they're using these laws as a way to try and shut down every single abortion clinic in the state of Texas and make it really, really, really difficult for women to obtain abortions. Um, The clinics say that these new requirements would close down 75% of the state's clinics and that remaining clinics would be concentrated in urban areas that would leave women in rural areas without any clinics for over 150 miles. Um, The conclusion of all of this is that, you know, the court is going to hear oral arguments on both of these cases in either February, March, and in June, they're going to issue decisions. Um, With respect to Little Sisters, the outcome will determine whether women who work for these organizations uh, who refuse to fill out this form will still be able to get birth control under the Affordable Care Act and how the Obama administration is going to have to deal with this issue moving forward should the court say that they do not. And in Cole, uh, however SCOTUS rules, the decision is going to be a blockbuster because on a 
a practical level, several other states, including Wisconsin, Louisiana, and Alabama, have similar laws. And if the state upholds these requirements, then those laws are going to go into effect and make it very, very difficult for women to get abortions in those states as well. And we'll see more states want to pass those laws. Uh, So on that note, I know I'm going to go to Selena, um, and I will see you all next week. Oh, no, we will all see you guys next week. Thank you so much, Alyssa, for breaking it down. The war on women does continue. We'll follow these cases. But you know what, guys? Unfortunately, we have to say goodbye. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. Again, you can always listen to our show on iTunes as well as on our website, lyvbh.com. Till next week. Do it better than anybody ever seen, do it.